0: This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. Every August, we go on holiday, so for this edition, we've decided to unearth some hidden gems from our 2006 archives for you. This month, we're presenting several stories. The Poet's Head is In My Lap by Elizabeth Ellen, Sue Ray by Brenda C. Wilson, Mother Country by Nick Antoska. Broomstick Limbo by Craig Turlson, Apocalypse by Tommy Shaw, Breaking It Down by Beverly C. Lucy, Love Mortar by Amelia Gray. Next month we'll be back to our regular short fiction programming. Be sure to listen in September for new stories by Bound Off contributors Merle Drown and Brian Brown. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Bound Off Bookstore, in affiliation with Amazon. There you can purchase the anthology's Flash Fiction Forward and See You Next Tuesday, which includes stories by several Bound Off contributors. The Poet's Head is in My Lap. Written by Elizabeth Allen and read by Anne Rushton. Listening time, eight minutes. The poet's head is in my lap, his legs entwined between mine. The poet is wearing flimsy tennis shoes and a worn jean jacket and doesn't look like a poet at all. My surprise at seeing him for the first time this morning did not escape his notice. You thought you were in the wrong room, he smiled into my ear an hour later, in the pub across the street, and I shyly nodded and hid my face, which was flushed both from the warmth of the bar and the directness of his questioning in the lining of his jacket. Our speech by then had been liberated by the half-pints of ale that slid too easily down our throats and swelled our otherwise empty stomachs. The poet bears little resemblance to the photo on the jacket of the book currently between my fingers. The man in the small black and white photograph has neatly cropped hair, large muscles, and angry eyes. The man in the photograph looks dangerous. I stare at him, imagining his heavy fists raised in the air, ugly words spewing forth from his tightly clenched mouth. The man whose cheek is pressed firmly to my swollen belly is not dangerous. His small body is curled and twisted around mine offering passers-by the impression of a child resting safely within the confines of its mother's body. We, the poet and I, are nestled in the warm grass, sharing the lawn with similarly entangled pairs of bodies on this cloudless spring afternoon. I am unaccustomed to drinking during the day, and the heaviness of my head confirms this fact. I am unaccustomed also to men I have just met falling asleep, stretched out over top my abdomen, their fingers traveling upwards beneath the stiff fabric of my shirt, preferring the softness of my skin, and yet here is the poet, asleep beneath my gaze, warming my middle with his unlabored breasts. The sun inches tentatively across the sky. The poet's head rises and falls. More rapidly now I turn the pages of his book, lost to the words within, rushing through them toward an end, momentarily forgetting their creator in so doing. For twenty minutes or half an hour or long enough for the sun to pass beneath the branches of the tree overhead, the poet rests, does not stir, remains peaceful in his stillness, until, eventually, perhaps sensing somewhere in his subconscious my abandonment of him. He moves, turns and tosses, emits from a place I could not see a low moan like the call of a calf, and I turn immediately to him, watching his mouth for spilled words as his lips and eyes flutter, erupting small bumps on the skin that lies beneath. I stroke his head, smooth the matted hair from his face, soothe him back into slumber with whispered words of affection like the lover I am not, and when his body is content and motionless once more I turn again to the book which speaks to me as he cannot. His poetry is log complaints, tales of unanswered longings and hijacked lovers. It speaks indulgently of motherless men seeking redemption in the arms of wayward women. "'anchoring themselves unsuccessfully to their restless bodies "'and being cast unapologetically aside. "'I read with one hand holding the book, "'the other cradling the poet's head. "'I read and am undone by his story. "'I read and am enamored by his needs, which are many. "'I read and am overcome with the knowledge "'that I alone will be the assager of his fears. "'I will stay with you,' I tell him through pressed lips. I will stay and hold you as you wish to be held. I will clutch you to me day and night. I will not tire nor waver in my purpose. I will place you on your back and preside over you with the strength of ten men. I will wipe clean your memories with one well-positioned knee to the throat. I will quell your nightmares with one hand over your nose and the other covering your mouth i will do the things the other women would not i will do the things of which you were too ashamed to speak the poet's body grows heavy over top me reminding me of my weighted bladder and the overwhelming need to empty it the sun is a constant presence on our backs creating a pooling layer of moisture between our adhered bodies and a pounding in my head my legs confined between his have begun to ache, and my eyes jump from page to page, overlooking the words they deem unimportant, racing ahead to the acknowledgments and, once more, the dangerous man's photograph. His poetry has made an amnesiac of me. I have forgotten, in my study of his confessional lines, my own poems, yet unpublished, sitting in a neat stack upon my desk. In my intoxication with his language, I fail to remember my own linguistic call for a lover, someone who will take me on his knee, allow me to sleep folded like a small child or pet upon his lap, let me call him Daddy when I am good, and wash my mouth out when I am not. We could take turns, I stupidly think. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I will address his wants, answer his questions, meet his unmet needs. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays he will reciprocate. Sundays we will rest. Sundays we will play Scrabble and Cribbage and Parcheesi. Sundays we will be the quiet couple you see at Denny's, sharing a grand slam, buttering our toast. The poet suddenly unwinds his legs, dislocates his limbs, liberates himself from my body. The poet sits up, speaks of his desires, for coffee, a bathroom, a place to write. We walk awkwardly down the street, two separate entities, unhinged from one another at last. He leads and I follow. He opens a door and I step through it. We sit, the poet and I, in a familiar café at separate tables and write what is in our heads. We write and form our goodbyes, create our apologies for the thoughts unspoken, the feelings only guessed at. We part as friends, each wrapping an arm shyly about the other, speaking of future meetings though we know there will be none. We part as friends. We part dissatisfied lovers. We part with a quiet feeling of failure, I'm more than he. He having long ago grown accustomed to the feeling. He having made a career of it. A life. The end. Sue Ray, written by Brenda C. Wilson and read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 13 minutes.
1: My mother can rattle on for hours about something Sue Ray said when they took a break from bar tacking Pants Pockets. I hold the phone to my ear and trail my fingers through the dust accumulated on the windowsill. As the unmarried daughter, my news is eclipsed by stories of engagements, babies, breakups, and breakdowns. Yet, I can tell on my siblings, like when we were still kids, hear my mother's stories, and be the Caldwell family historian. Despite our ages, we are the same children from the black and white photos, playing hide-and-go-seek on Sundays until dusk. Our roles are captured there in the portrait under the chinaberry tree. A storyteller, a liar, a sad one, and a beautiful one trapped in the sepia light. Sue Ray is leaving her third husband that slaps her around every Friday night. I swear I don't understand young women, says my mother. Really, there is nothing new for me to say about this story. We worked extra hours this week to get a special shipment out, big old plaid shorts. Five days a week they sit on an assembly line stitching back pockets that come tied in bundles. Bar tacking. She has shown me how they assemble the pockets. A few quick turns where they stitch the actual pocket and then she flips it over and tacks the corners on the top side. They never work on finished pants, just the back pockets. Making production or completing a certain number of bundles per day without rejects means that she makes better than minimum wage. Plus, any rejected work is returned by the line inspector, pulled apart, and restitched. Work stories are soft lead-ins to my mother's phone narratives of the week. Sue Ray's pains are not our pains. We can afford to be callous with our judgments. She is not part of our family and white. I am hundreds of miles away hiding my life behind well-chosen filtered details and Christmas visits. I work in a windowless gray office analyzing real estate loans. Sifting through documents and calculating the repayment ability of the bank's customers. At lunchtime, I wander the streets and stare at men's asses, wondering if my mother bar tacked their back pockets, too. I got some scraps to start a new quilt. They had several nice leftover pieces of cloth. Sue Ray, none of these young women bother to try and quilt. My mother's talking about me, too. I have never learned anything remotely domestic. From the open doorway of the prefab metal factory, I have seen the women hunched over their machines intent on the day's production, with the whirring and humming of the machines filling the building like an orchestrated giant engine. Their movements are like robots, their heads bent down and their arms sawing the air with close movement as they stitch the often unrecognizable parts with demon alacrity, as if their lives depended on the assembly of pants. My mother often brought home scraps of fabric and large paper spools of thread shaped like inverted ice cream cones that would have otherwise been discarded after a production run for special sizes, types, and pants colors. Once in a while they laughed at the final products at the factory sale. Big and tall sizes are Mr. Glenn's garment plant specialty, 42 by 42 and larger. I've been waiting on your daddy to go get some grocery before the meat is picked over, she says in a sing-song way. Although she has a car, my mother doesn't like to drive herself to the market. She yells into the phone because, for too many years, she has worked in these plants with machinery screaming into fast-open rooms without so much as an earplug or a mask from the fabric dust. A union would have made a difference, according to my father, who is 100% United Auto Worker. My father comes home each night with black oil spots on his blue uniform. Samuel is written in blue lettering, encircled by red embroidery on the white patch pocket. Your father is late again probably at the state line buying beer instead of coming home first. Did I tell you Sue Ray is getting another divorce? Only once this week mom. My mother ignores my sarcasm. Each day at the garment plant they take two fifteen minute breaks. One at ten o'clock and one at three o'clock. Most of the women find a corner in the break room to light a cigarette or eat crackers and chips from the snack machine. My mother thinks that Sue Ray is a foolish woman yet she insists on sitting at the table with her at break and at lunch. I think my mother is fascinated by Sue Ray's life and the fact that she could change it, but she won't. Sue Ray has been married three times at age 30 with three children, one from each marriage. Many of the young women, black and white, are like Sue Ray. They marry as a form of recreation in the backwater hometown that I escaped. Their lives have not been about college or career choices such as the ones my mother worked towards for my siblings and me. Few people from my high school class have made the break from factory jobs and bad marriages. Bad examples are the only heirloom passed down by the poor people that we know. Harriet Henderson started working here. She left the Vernon plant. Didn't she graduate with one of you? If she was my daughter, I would whoop her ass. Harriet graduated with Sam, Jr. I remember Harriet Henderson. My brother had a giant crush on her when we were in high school. She was a homecoming queen. Now she doesn't even have a car or a husband and lives at home with her mama and four little boys. That girl has made a mess of her life, having babies with married men of all things. Somebody said that the last boy was fathered by your cousin Walter. Cousin Walter works at the cotton mill and has a wife and two children. Both my brothers worked in the factories as summer jobs during college. I escaped the factory altogether. Our parents made sure that we could have better lives and sent all of us off to college. She tells Mr. Glenn, the factory owner, about us constantly and reminds him that there is hope for the children of the poor. Where have you been all weekend calling this late? Call Sam. He was asking about you earlier, wondering what a single girl does all weekend. People, including my family, misconstrue being single as being wild and married as being settled, despite what they see and do themselves. I've just been busy, Mom, working. I do not add that I'm looking for another job, that I'm bored out of my mind because my mother will remind me of how many people make less and have had fewer opportunities. I wonder if I had stayed in Alabama, would I have been more like Harriet or Sue Ray? She thinks that I just need to settle down with a man and have a couple of babies like everyone else. Only another single woman can tell you the price of solitude. Only another single woman can recite the litany of bad blind dates that get worse the older you get ex-cons, confidence men, and plain desperate men who just want to be married. As a working woman without children and my own teeth I am a magnet for such men. My mother's concerns flow in a different direction now that schooling for us has been completed. She ignores my oldest brother Sam's alcohol and drug problem. Sister Val's been married two times and has a baby boy and I am a corporate vagabond moving from city to city on a whim like a dandelion scattered about in a summer breeze. Stephen, the youngest, is secretive and lives the farthest away in New Orleans. My mother says if Stephen's life is illicit and sinful, she would rather not know the details. Mama, I have to tell you something. I thought I heard a car a minute ago. Val was here earlier with the baby. He's just like her. He looks a little like Robert, too, I say. My mother has practically wallpapered the house with the baby's pictures. Valerie's husband Robert is a jerk and has left her for another woman. In my mother's opinion, one man is pretty much like another. None of them will do right. My father has two boys outside of marriage that resemble him more than any of us do. We've got a choir anniversary on Sunday. Should be a nice turnout with this nice weather we're having. It should be nice this weekend, I add lamely. My mother knows that I haven't been to church in years, so we don't discuss this. Mom sings in the choir beside Vivian. More than once I have seen them share a hymn book. Occasionally, they end up taking communion together, where the blood of Christ is grape Kool-Aid, and the body of Christ is represented by saltines. Mama believes that in the end, God will mete out the punishment for my father and Vivian. As a family, we are torn apart and asked to forgive sins that we are bound not to discuss. In doing so, we have become a party to my mother's martyrdom, and we are equally broken and damaged. I bought a new white suit for the pastor's anniversary in June. It's double-breasted and has a really long skirt. My mother and the other stewardesses, elder women in the Methodist church, will file through the double doorway in white suits, gloves, and matching hats, like the crowns of angels. Stephen says that he'll be home next week and with the rest of you. Mama, he won't be coming. The four of us are failures at marriage and relationships in general. Both Val and Sam Jr. are divorced. I have failed in every relationship I've ever had, and our younger brother Stephen has never been married, to our knowledge. I do not speak of relationships with my mother, unlike my siblings. Despite the fact that we are all beyond age 30, they keep seeking approval, which will never come. I do not believe my mother has forgiven herself for loving my father when he has disgraced all of us, but especially her. Shame is an odd thing. We have done nothing wrong. Oh, he said he would really try this time, my mother says. I got a phone call from a friend in New Orleans this morning. She thought we knew. Knew what? Stephen was charged this morning for domestic violence against the girl he's been living with. She caught him cheating with her best friend. Eventually, my mother will blame my father. Long ago, I began agreeing with my mother's opinion of men. I have been in therapy, my sister is trying prayer, my brothers are getting high. We are a beautiful family, smiling into the camera, a portrait of success on the surface. But we will never become one of those dysfunctional TV families so notorious for airing their dirty linen in public. Silence. The Caldwell family will remain silent. Well, we know he wouldn't hurt a woman. It's all just a misunderstanding. I wait for my mother to go on just like his daddy, she whispers into the phone, although she is home alone. Her contempt has been years in the making. With the house empty of children, she can closely examine her hurt, like a lost treasure in her old age. Are you going down to New Orleans to help him? Mama, I can't help Stephen. He has to help himself. My mother is quiet. She will never admit that Stephen has a problem. So we'll speak of other things, like people who can't be hurt anymore, things beyond us like sue ray sometimes she does not shout into the phone as she picks lint from her work clothes and sneezes at the dust that is trapped in every pore alongside the hatred she will not acknowledge because of her professed christianity the dog has left again he broke the chain and took off i wonder if my mother ever thinks she made a mistake staying with my father if we would have been different had she left if one of us would have figured out that love wasn't always so one-sided, so painful, a battlefield full of casualties. Were Sue Ray's parents together when she was growing up, I ask? What kind of question is that? I try to envision Sue Ray from high school, but can't quite conjure up a face. I was just asking, did she grow up with both her parents in the same house? I want to know if Sue Ray ever felt love or ever saw the face of love close up, but cannot phrase such a question. Her daddy left them when she was little. I don't think she even knows him, my mother says. What about Harriet? Harriet's daddy was a minister at the Church of God. He would turn over in his grave if he knew what kind of woman she had become. Your brother could have married that girl. As fat as she is, Sam Jr. surely doesn't have any regrets now. I have always known how to make my mother laugh. Sam can't abide fat women. That's your daddy pulling into the driveway. We've got to run and get a little grocery now. Call your brother. I'll talk to your daddy about going down there. Bye. Bye, I say to the dial tone. The last connection has been made for my mother. All of her children have made the weekly calls home. From a distance, I need to hear her stories as much as she needs to tell them. Long after she is hung up, her voice lingers in my head. I envision my mother filling out her days, bar tacking the big men's pants for little over minimum wage yet knowing her life has purpose. She will pray and carry on. More and more I am afraid that the day will come when there will be silence on her line and no more chances to know how Sue Ray and the rest of us can stand to go on. The End
0: Mother Country Written by Nick Antoska and read by Mark Rushton Listening time, two minutes
2: 3 a.m. The hotel suite is quiet. The Commander-in-Chief sleeps. Rest is needed. In the morning, a speech. A defense of military aggression. From the armchair, I watch him. The First Lady has a separate suite. She will not sleep in bed with him anymore. Last time, she had to wear a turtleneck for a week. In the other room, a Secret Service man dozes on the red divan. Another lurks in the dark beside the curtains. For this I leave my wife and kids alone for weeks. During the stressful times I must be with him every night. They say no one else calms his terrors like I do. Now he is silent and still. But soon, sometime before dawn, he will howl himself awake, lips pulled back in horror, striking helplessly at invisible things, maybe strangling his pillow again. He will be in tears. Not the silent weeping of men, but the crocodile tears, the huge, wet, gored-out sobs of an infant. I'll hold him. Little dogs come to me, he'll say. Little dogs, biting with their teeth. Or, lawn gnomes, lawn gnomes again. This may seem funny to you, but it's not funny at all. It affects every one of us. The one that frightens him the most is the dream with the monks. The naked monks of indeterminate religion who encircle him. Somehow blood is involved, and the moon, and popsicles. Exactly what is done to him he will not say, but it causes screaming. It certainly does that. A Bible lies beside the bed at all times, reassuring him that he is with us and will protect. Waking up, he usually thinks I'm his mother, so I hold him, and we pray. Yes, when he wakes, I hold him, and we pray. The end.
0: Broomstick Limbo, written and read by Craig Turlson. Listening time, five minutes.
3: Broomstick Limbo, by Craig Turlson. It's the color I remember. An egg yolk, yellow broomstick, a bright orange t-shirt that said Crush, poplar leaves in the July sun, and blood that ran along a pale leg and disappeared into emerald grass. There were three of us, all nine years old, walking back from the pool. Paul had a big bag of salt vinegar chips, the kind that made your mouth go numb. Brian had a bag of those damn strawberry marshmallows that stained your lips like some cheap lipstick from the Met store. My tongue, a deep purple from the giant sweetheart, buzzed as we passed the RCMP headquarters and took the last hail before my street. In my backyard, we rested against the tall poplar, the one that stood sentinel-like and looked out to the barren prairie behind my yard. I don't remember what we talked about or what got us onto the subject of limbo. Who knows why kids say what they say. We should do it, Paul said. You got a long stick? It's got to be pretty long, Brian said with his red-stained lips. I don't know if they talk like that. It's hard to recall the exact conversation but the sounds come back. The lawn had its own hum that drifted up and around us. It got louder as we became quieter. A car or a half-ton whip by on the gravel road that separated me from the prairie. It would drown out the other sounds, and then they would wash back in. I used to sit in the backyard and just listen to the thrum. Wind rustling through shafts of fireweed came across the road and mingled with crickets and dragonflies and bullfrogs that skated through the grass as they tried to escape the mower. That's the sound that comes back the most. The mower. My dad had fired it up just when we got back outside with the broom handle. Fired was a good word for it. It belched thick black smoke as it chugged along. My father in faded cutoffs urging it through the thick grass. I didn't really want to do the limbo. Maybe it was too hot. Or it bugged me how Brian started to do this boom-da-boom-da-boom noise. Even at nine, he thought he was an expert on things. You got to have a drum. He had to say it loud to be heard over the mower. You go first. Paul pointed at me. Brian with those damn lips grinned. Why me? Brian's drum sound joined with the mower sound, and this sinister feeling sort of swelled up in me. The two of them held the yellow broom handle. Paul swayed his head back and forth to Brian's beat. Limbo. There was something else about that word, something darker than just dancing. Something other than just trying to bend your body close to the ground. Uh, guys, uh, maybe... I started to say we shouldn't do this. We were messing with something I didn't understand. Some weird religion thing. Something that made me think of demons and fire. Come on, do it! Brian said between drum beats. He was the one with the crushed shirt. I stared at those white letters against a background that looked like it was already on fire. Brian boomed louder. There was a clack and a grind, and then nothing but Brian booming, soft, under his breath. I knew the mower threw stones once in a while. I'd heard my father swear when one bounced off his jeans. Before I turned my head, I had an image of these rusty blades catapulting rocks at bare-legged people. Paul dropped his end of the stick. Roy, my father called to me. Go get Winnie. I just stared at the silent mower, and my father and his jean cut off's. I watched the line of blood thicken and then drip and then gush onto the ground. I wonder how a stone could do that, or even if it was a stone. What lay hidden in our grass that could rip open flesh like that? I barely remember how I got next door, or how out of breath I told my neighbor she had to come next door real fast, or how the ambulance came and drowned out all the other noises. My father lost a lot of blood in a short time, and he limped for a few weeks. That was about it. I do remember that afternoon going into the backyard and slamming that yellow broomstick against the tree until it snapped. Even as a kid, I felt some faraway connection to people that danced around orange fires that shot sparks into indigo skies. It's the color that comes back again. We shouldn't do things that we don't know anything about. I thought that then. I think it now. And I remember how the stone that the mower threw sat on our mantle for a lot of years. Its jagged edge reminded me of the thick black stitches that laced up my dad's leg. It reminded me of things that I shouldn't do. And it reminded me of a guilt that, though unwarranted, after all these years, I still can't shake.
0: Apocalypse. Written and read by Tommy Shaw. Listening
4: time, two minutes. Apocalypse. The contagion spread like mercury spilled balled up and scattered from silver spoon to silver spoon baron through mogul politician from king scholar and academe creme de la creme hubris the plague for the mighty felled heavenly fisted and divinely cold in prevention for containment and contamination cities put to flame burned to and into the ground lumber charred steel melted atop open graves of ash piled high, and organics withered. After, the meat clung to the earth, her soil and water, her fruit, built fires in the open, tended them, sacrificed, sometimes the boniest foot of the smallest rabbit, or the rare fortune of a fat fecund sea-bass. But mainly kelp or dried out stalks of plants that yesteryear were taken inside to winter, were covered in plastic, were protected. The smoke from the fires of the dead is the same as the smoke from the fires of sacrifice and survival in its twisting ephemeral rising, its savory itch, its blanketing. Smoke, a thing unchanged. The few left, they are what changes. One bears a child a year into her flow, an elder loses a daughter, her milk, and her life in a birthing gone rancid. In mornings, the men pull themselves out of the makeshift lean-tos and carry themselves into woods and boats, and sometimes they come back.
0: Breaking It Down Written by Beverly C. Lucy and read by Mark Rushton Listening Time, 6 Minutes, 30 Seconds
2: Breaking It Down by Beverly C. Lucy Ian sits easily in the hard laminated desk, his body twisting slightly so he can address the entire class when he needs to. They are rubes, his classmates, and easy to impress. Ian knows things, things these locals would never grasp. In fact, taking a freshman composition course wasted his valuable time, but he humored the registrar, his advisor, and the professor. Right now he is taking issue with a question Karen asked about point of view. Can we use I in this paper? She just said that the paper should be objective. I can never be objective. It's the first rule of journalism, Ian notes. Then looks at the professor. I'm right, right? Except his face itches. The mistake occurred this morning. It took four long drags of the razor before he realized he had not coated the growth with shaving gel. Now the right side of his jaw feels alive and prickly. No wonder he left his notebook home. No one could think straight with cheek ants. He watches Lacey, who sits beside Cairn, staring at her own weedy split ends, her eyes crossing. Ian can see each strand as if they are magnified, bound like white asparagus in a rubber band. No one has vision like his. No one. He becomes distracted by her nipples, which are huge for such a small, bony girl. They seem to be growing, but that couldn't be right. What if they spread underneath her gauzy shirt and threaten to escape like the mudslide he saw once while living in California? He rubs his encrusted eyes and thinks about the beach. Arkansas has no beach. Wait, what just happened? Everyone's leaving. Ian knows he can't get up, even though the class appears over. First, his legs won't move not on command like that, just because the time is up. Second, he has to convince the professor that while his way of writing is not reflected in the course outline, it shouldn't matter. I just wanted to let you know that I've been working on that paper, and I should have it ready by next week, he flashes the good smile, the one he uses in bars. She's old, but she's female. She'll get it. What paper is that? She's looking around for easy erase markers tossing them into her rolling briefcase, already stuffed with folders, water bottles, peanut butter nabs, and pens. She's playing with him, the bitch. The descriptive paper you gave us to do. See, I work a little differently than most people, and I can't hand in anything that isn't perfect. You understand that. You're a writer, too. Ian, I haven't seen you in a month. We've done three papers since then. I'm sorry if you're still working on an old paper. It's too late good she sits down if she walked out it would be bad but she sits down so that's good Ian says I meant to email you to let you know what's been going on but it's personal and well I guess I can trust you okay here's the thing he mentions a few tidbits like the ADD and the other medications and how they hated each other which turned into a problem for a while but it's all fixed now and he's worked it out with all his teachers and is starting fresh Really? You're on top of your other classes? Ian can tell she is worried about keeping her job. He figures she wants to be one of those creative teachers who cares and are flexible. Deadlines were for the masses. She looks at him, impressed that he has managed to emerge from a month-long fog ready to go. Ian has filed complaints against faculty before in other schools, but he won't need to in this case. Oh, well, see, I don't have to go to my psych classes except for the tests it's easy I know all that stuff and my religion professor has been terrific he knows what I'm working on what's that it's a religious journal my journey I should show it to you you'd love it it's about ready to be published sounds as though you don't really need this course exactly he thinks she gets it he doesn't need this stupid course but still he tells her about his work with the army special training in psyop his other projects his plans How he needs to stay below the radar with these other meds so his career won't be ruined. But he can trust her, and he makes the promise to come to class every session from now on, stopping only when his tongue gets too big in his mouth, turning white and fuzzy like a mutant caterpillar. But he's finished his Mountain Dew, so he has no choice. He looks over the teacher's head to Pinnacle Mountain. Maybe he'll climb that tonight. Yeah. Stay up there for a week. Shake up his folks. No. He has to focus. So we're okay? As long as you know you can't get higher than a C at this point, even if you do everything from now on, we're okay. I gotta be fair to the others. You don't get it, do ya? He probably shouldn't be screaming, but she deserves it. What's that? I can't get a C? C is average. I'm not average. Can't you see that? Fine. I'll make up the work if that's what you want. Trust me, I can do it. I can do anything. I'm a perfectionist, though, and I, I can't hand it in if it's not perfect. Had he said that already? And so long as you know that I don't bother with spelling and structural garbage, because it's all about the content, isn't it, right? I speak into the computer and it types for me. I'll send you four papers in streaming audio. You'll love them. He gets up since they are agreed, and therefore finished. That won't be considered makeup work. Did you write down the title of the story I want you to download for Thursday? Excuse me? is she still talking they were finished he tells her i'm late for a meeting upstairs with one of the full professors that will make her think twice he moves swiftly out the doorway and heads down the long hallway past the elevator the vending machines and the lost and found ian crosses the street he sees her in the parking lot five minutes later getting into her stupid loser teacher car but is sure that she doesn't see him even though she looks straight in his direction two cars over from her he can be invisible when he wants to be. The Army needs people just like him. The End
0: Love Mortar, written by Amelia Gray and read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, 3 minutes, 45 seconds.
5: Love Mortar, by Amelia Gray My love for you is like a brick. It sits silent in me when you bring out my food at the Dine-and-Dart, Red tray Aloft, your skin gleaming like grilled onions. My love is rough around the edges, but solid through the center, fresh from the kiln. My love for you is heavy and dark, Jenny. It builds and breaks down, Jenny. It cracks the windows between you and me, you mixing milkshakes for Little League winners, and me, miserly with sandwich wrappers in my car, you smiling down at the register like a woman with secrets, and me, in agony over the golden arch of your eyebrow. A brick, inert and dangerous. This love can be worn down, but there is always substance to it, always heft, as when you struggle to lift the box of flash frozen patties, that iced mead against your bare arms, the cold thickness of your flesh a barrier against the protected warmth of your lungs, your heart, your bones. When your manager helps you with that box, the brick grinds in my chest. Your manager, Bill of the blue eyes, Bill of the no-parking policy, Bill of the fast-food tie. He tucks it in his shirt as he walks to the bathroom. You might be kind and claim that Bill is a good man, but what you'll soon learn is that there are no good men, Jenny. None left at all. Not even me. Though I'm good deep down. Almost to the center. Almost to the center. But the center of me is that brick. It's there when you bring my cheeseburger, no lettuce, on a steaming red tray. It's there when you reach into your flat front pouch for my straw. It's there when you pull your hair up behind your visor when you go in for your shift, and when you lean over the grease trap with your scraper and bucket. It's there when you stand at the register, Jenny, your unpainted fingernails hovering over the keys as you think of those old dollar bills, the tens and rolls of quarters, wondering if you shouldn't just no-sale the register and open it. One of those times when blue-eyed, striped tie Bill is smoking a cigarette in the bathroom and looking at the Sears catalog he has hidden behind the toilet. You could just open that register and reach in with two hands and pull out fistfuls of cash and put it in your front pocket, stuffing it all down there, paper-wrapped straws scattering across the greasy floor. You'd walk out and throw your visor into the garbage and you would never come back. But where would you go with your great treasure? I see you on the beach at Galveston peeling off that thick, dirty uniform and walking slow into the water, trading the salt of french fries and tater tots for the healing salt of the ocean. I see you saving souls in that warm water, Jenny. I see you taking men in that water and making bricks of them all. You sink them there and build a wall with them and create purpose to their roughness and use to their weight. You build a seawall and stand on the other side with your feet planted wide on the hot sand your golden hair streaming behind you like a flag of independence. You have a power, and there is no reason this power should frighten you. Surely you see how Bill looks at you, and the men paving the road and even me over my cheeseburger, no lettuce, sucking chocolate milk through a straw. We are all drawn to you. But I am the only one who understands that draw, knowing how I started the kiln's fire myself long ago. Now my guts are full of clay, and you can dig it out yourself. Open me up and hold the dangerous brick in your hands. Feel the sharpness under your fingers. It's deadly complexity. End.
0: Thanks for listening to Boundoff. Copyright Boundoff and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for more information.